0: Don't touch that dial.
1: All right, I'm finally bringing you the Behind the Bits podcast. I'm excited about this. I've been working on it for a long time. I've described this podcast about the tragedy and triumph of stand up comedy. And if you've been doing comedy at all, you know that you're going to have both. I've got two goals for the podcast. First, I want to talk to comics in all phases of their careers about their craft. Why do they do stand-up? How long did it take to get good at it? What's the writing process? How did you find your voice? All these questions. I'm hoping to bring new comics, comedy professionals, and comedy nerds all the advice and golden nuggets of information and inspiration that will help them be the best that they can be second i'd like to build a community of comics that can share advice bitch about the business help everyone get booked and just have someone to lean on when times get tough or celebrate with them when you have a killer show so who am i i'm scott curtis i'm a 55 year old guy who's been married for 31 years i've got two grown kids and one cool grandson I've started doing stand-up at the age of 50 because I'm a super late bloomer, and I just fell in love with it right away. Uh, I don't have any big aspirations for myself, but I've gotten to know a lot of comics who do. They want to go somewhere in the business. So I want to be a helper, and I think this podcast can accomplish that in a big way. I'll probably talk more about my stand-up escapades and the life in general and future podcasts, but right now I'm just excited to get this one moving. I talked to my wife, Lisa, about, uh, about doing this podcast, and she asked me who my dream guest would be, and without skipping a beat, I said, Tom Dreesen. You see, Tom was the first comic that ever caught my attention back when I saw him on the Mike Douglas show. Now, I was about 10 years old. And for you youngsters, Mike Douglas had a daytime talk show, kind of like Ellen, for like a million years. The rest of the story of my first Tom Dreessen experience is in the interview, so I won't bore you with it twice. So Tom Dreessen is my dream guest, and that's why I asked him to be my first guest. I was pretty surprised when he said yes and called me the very next week. Now, if I sound a little choked up at the start of the interview, it's because I was. That was a big deal to me. We talked a lot about his history, so I won't bore you with a long bio here. Here's what you need to know about Tom, though. He's been in the business for over 50 years. He was in the first black and white comedy team with Tim Reed um, and the last, and he was Frank Sinatra's opening act for 14 years. Now, let's let that sink in. He was so good at his craft that Sinatra wanted Tom to open for him all the way up until he retired. And he was so good that he could entertain a crowd that didn't come to see him. Obviously, they came to see Sinatra, but Tom would go out first and get the crowd ready, and they loved him. Okay, let's get this show on the road. Uh, But before we start, since this is a new podcast, I'd really appreciate a good rating on whatever platform you listen to your podcast uh, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever. uh, If you like it, obviously, if you don't like it, then maybe don't leave a rating yet. Also, please share it up with your friends and help spread the word. Um, You can follow us on Facebook at Behind the Bits Podcast, um, on Twitter at the btbpc it was hard to get a name so it's the BTB PC and on instagram at uh, behind the bits podcast i may do some other social media in the future but like i said i'm 55 years old and three of them are a lot for me thanks for listening to this long intro and here's tom dreesen Hey folks, welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. This is Scott Curtis. I'm here with my first guest, Tom Dreesen. You may have heard of him. Hey Tom.
2: Hey Scott, how you doing?
1: I'm doing great. I just wanted to let you know about my history with you. So, when I I think I was around 10 or 11 years old. I was watching the um, Mike Douglas show. And You came on and did a bit about uh, somebody offering you drugs and uh, you saying uh, they say it makes makes you feel like the back of your head's falling off. And uh, (laughs) you came up with uh, your punchline was something like, uh, well, why don't you just hit me in the back of the head with a shovel? (laughs) Uh,
2: What it was was the bit I haven't done it in years, but I was at a party and a guy said, you know, pop this and sniff it. Uh-huh. I said, what does it do? He said, it's wonderful. Feels like the whole back of your head's coming off. I said, why don't I just light up a cigarette and you hit me in the face with a shovel? You
1: know? <laughs> I mean, okay, so that hooked me. Um, I, you know, when you're 10 or 11 years old, you, you, you're not concentrating on anything. And for some reason, you hit me as, as the funniest guy in the world. So I started just looking for wherever you were. Like when you did Dinah Shore, Carson, Griffin. Um, you even did like Soul Train and American Bandstand. And, uh, you know, all I obviously there was no internet. So all I had was a TV guide to tell me when you were on. <laughs> and um, did, you, you did a, a couple episodes of Midnight Special, too, didn't you?
2: Yeah. I After my first Tonight Show, it changed my whole career. <clears throat> the moment I, I, I got bumped three times before I did my first Tonight Show, but I got on the fourth time. And that night it was a hot crowd. <clears throat> and, and Johnny called me back through the curtain after I went through the curtain. After my bow, he called me back to take a second bow back through the curtain. And and, and I n- have never stopped working since. Um, this is my 50th year in show business. I ended up doing 61 appearances on The Tonight Show. But from that point on, I start doing Dinah Shore, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Johnny Carson. I mean, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand, uh, and a Hollywood scores. I, I I was doing game shows, and uh, you know that 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 show just launched me. I, I ended up doing like over fifty Dinah, over fifty Mer Griffin, over fifty Mike Douglas. Uh, and and it was just it, it just and in Soul Train. You know, I'm the only white comedian ever do um, Soul Train because I put an album out in front of an all black audience called "That White Boy Is Crazy."
1: That's a great I was the album. First
2: white comedian, or the only white comedian, ever to do an album in front of an all black audience.
1: Mm. <clears throat> And you you so, did that in Harvey. You recorded that in Harvey, didn't you?
2: I did. Yes, I went back to my hometown. Um, I was living out in California, but I went back and worked a little club called Benji's. That's no longer there, but because uh, I, I figured they'd be the they'd be the the best critics of whether or not this material was good or not. Because it's people I grew up with, you know.
3: Right, no and, doubt. Uh,
2: and it was really it was really fun, really exciting. But again, in those days, wherever you went in America. People say, "What do you do for a living?" And you say, "I'm a stand-up comedian." The next question out of their mouth would be, "Oh yeah? Have you ever been on Johnny Carson?" And if you hadn't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. You might want to be one or going to be one, but you weren't one then. And so every we all, you know, flocked to the West Coast when Johnny Carson moved his show out to California in 1972. You know, by the time I got out here, was 75, and by that time. Everybody knew one appearance on the Tonight Show, and your life could change.
1: Right. Thinking about that, you know, uh, let's back up a little bit and talk about how you got started in comedy, because everybody everybody who's a comic wants to know how everybody got started. How how did that all start out for you?
2: You know, I, I had never thought of ever being in show business. It was the furthest thing from my mind. There was no way you could have ever told me that one day I'd be in this business. I, you know, I spent, uh, I had, I grew up very poor in Harvey, Illinois, eight brothers and sisters lived in a shack, five of us slept in one bed, you know, mm-hmm. raggedy poor, um, holes in my shoes from the time I was, you know, you know, go, growing up my first pair of shoes till I, till I went to the <laughs> Navy, you know, yeah. I just was raggedy poor kid. I came out of the service and, and, um, uh, I spent four years in the service and then I came out and got married right away. Kids coming and, and I, I worked construction. I went from job to job. Um never being real happy in any of them, you know just getting good at whatever it was, from working construction to working on a loading dock to um uh being coming a teamster and then dropping my card and becoming management and uh you know and and then selling life insurance, I was a bartender, I was a photographer, I was a private detective, I had every job <laughs> I've known the man you know yeah, <laughs> but never happy with any of them, never feeling quite fulfilled you mm-hmm. know and then uh i joined a civic group called the jc's the junior chamber of commerce and uh they taught to leadership training program and all that uh, programs and how to serve on a committee how to chair a committee how to how to uh, work projects that made the community a better place to live and in doing so you got leadership training program anyhow that is a long story, but I wanted to get to the point was one of the problems of our community in those days were our youth using drugs as it is today. Mm -hmm. And so I wrote a drug education program that I want to run as a JC project. I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor. It's a concept I had. Mm -hmm. And I had a a guy was going to help me in the JCs. His name was John DeBoer. He's a white guy. And the night I proposed it to the JCs that I wanted to run this drug education program as a JC program, um, the, the JCs approved of it. They sanctioned it. And that same evening, a young black man came up to me and said, I would like to help you with that project. Uh, I'm, it's my first meeting here. I just moved in here from Norfolk, Virginia. And he joined the JCs and he wanted to help me. I said, gee, I already got a guy, but thank you. Uh-huh. And the next day, as fate would have it, John DeBoer, my friend, called me and said, I can't do it, I got a new job. I said, gee, what was that black guy's name? Oh yeah, Tim Reed. So I called him, and we start working on the project and uh, we went into the classrooms and the program became number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries. JC's used it as a model program throughout their publications on how to teach drug education at an elementary school level. And one day, a little eighth grade girl Said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. (laughs) You know, we used to do jokes off of one another. We played records, got the kids' attention, and then we'd plant the seeds. But as she was leaving the the classroom, she said, You guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And two days later, we were talking about what this little girl said. And I, you know, we said, Would you, he said, Would you do it? I said, I don't know. Would you do it? We didn't know what to do. You know, there were no comedy clubs in America in those days. Mm It was 1969 so we start writing what we thought was material. And, you know, we we wrote for like three or four months. And finally, we got the courage of going to a nightclub, a jazz club, and ask if we could get up after the group took a break. And the owner said, yeah, sure, go ahead. And we went up. We bombed. We we, we talked so fast. Uh We went 100 miles an hour. We just wanted to remember all of our lines. Right. And we came off stage and we got the owner in a corner and we rushed him in a corner. How'd we do? How'd we do? What'd you think? What'd you think? He said, I don't know how you did. You never gave me a chance to laugh. (laughs) He said, come back tomorrow and slow down. So we came back the next night and we got big laughs, you know,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: that was, it was like an epiphany for me. The moment I, it was something I had written that got a laugh. And when the room burst in the laughter, it was like an epiphany, like one of those B movies you see where the dark clouds open up and the sun burst through and you go, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. This is what I want to do. I want to be a comedian. And, and I, I mean, I, I I I know
1: how that feels, Tom. I know how that feels, yeah.
2: Exactly. So does every comedian. (laughs) Everybody who loves our profession knows that moment that you said, this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And and to be honest with you, Scott, the next day, I couldn't sleep all that night. It was a Friday night. I got up the next morning and I went to church. Uh, There was no service. A Catholic church that I went to as a little boy, where I was an altar boy, where I sang in the choir. And it was a Saturday morning, and I couldn't sleep all night. And I went and I prayed. I said, God, I now know what I want to do. And I was the only one in the church. It was a Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. And I said, I know what I want. I want to be a comedian. God, if you let me make my living as a comedian, I'll never ask for anything else. I'll do charities. I'm making all these promises. Because the thought that you could make a living making people laugh overwhelmed me. Right. And, um, and, and that's why it's 50 years in September. That was 50 years ago.
1: That's fantastic. Hey, can I ask you— And one? a little
2: addendum. Yeah, I, go ahead. Quick, not to cut you off, Scott, but a little, that was 50 years ago in September. In September, I went back to Chicago, to Harvey, Illinois, to Ascension Church, where I knelt and prayed as, as, as a young—first time on stage, and I went back and I gave a sermon to the congregation called The Power of Prayer, you know, Very and good. how it has worked in my life. So, uh, man, everything has a circle.
1: That, circle that's that that's fantastic uh i wanted to get back with uh when when you were doing um the show with uh tim did you guys have like a writing process or did you just you guys just bring ideas in and uh shoot them around how, how did you guys get a, an act together
2: we, you know we we were so naive we didn't know how to do it we just started Writing what we thought would, would you know would would make us laugh, you know, mm-hmm. and we were real real green at it. We had a friend named Dickie Owings who had never he was a funny guy, and he uh, a guy that I knew from grade school, and so he started helping us and we'd sit down we'd try to create these kind of little vignettes you know
0: mm-hmm. uh,
2: or where I took Tim to meet my italian father uh a routine where Tim was teaching me how to be black um you know, a, 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 a lot of routines had nothing to do with race at all, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, we did a bit on the dating game, and uh, then, we, you know, we had another routine where a guy who had a speech impediment was going into a fast food franchise, but they gave all the drinks and the sandwiches tricky, catchy names, you know? the magnificent, <laughs> <it> wasn't <laughs> a hamburger, it was a magnificent munchy Monster, it wasn't a, a Coke, it was a Bob's Bouncing Bounding Beverage, <laughs> they weren't French fries, they were Carol's Crispy Crunchy Crinkles, and yeah, you know, just silly routines that we we put together and then a little pattern in between. And we were rookies and, and we stumbled and stumbled and stumbled uh-huh. and failed and then got to start getting better and better. And as time went by, uh, he was an intern. I was an insurance salesman for Columbus Mutual Life Insurance and he was a salesman for E.I. DuPont. So we knew how to get in offices. We knew how to sell, uh-huh. you know. And, you know, we would we we'd get ourselves in the situations where we had to deliver and we finally start getting better. And I think what really turned us around was when we went on the Playboy circuit in those days. You know, in those days, you did four or five shows a night. You know, there were 17 Playboy clubs in America and two resorts, one at Great Gorge, in New Jersey, and the other at Lake Geneva, mm-hmm. Wisconsin. And then the, the Playboy clubs are all over, you know, Boston, New York, Um Baltimore, Chicago, Los Angeles, Miami, um Kansas City, Cincinnati, you know, we we worked them all and you do four or five shows a night and we started getting razor sharp timing, you know.
1: Right, right. So you guys really made history as being you weren't you the first black and white comedy team?
2: We not only were the first, we were the last. Yeah. Never <laughs> been one since. You know, uh, that was 40 We broke up 45 years ago, Uh but uh, we wrote a book called Tim and Tom on American Comedy in Black and White, what it was like touring the nation from 1969 to 1975, Uh uh, you know, in in the North and the South, no comedy clubs. So we worked all black clubs in the North and the South, what they affectionately call the Chitlin Circuit. Uh And then we worked all white nightclubs too, you know. right? And, um, And so we paid dues that no other act ever had to pay. We wrote a book about it that now Netflix is considering maybe doing a series about our life, you know, a four- to six-part
1: series. Wow, that that would be great. And if folks don't know who Tim Reed is, uh, if you go back and watch uh, WKRP in Cincinnati, it's Venus Flytrap. And he's he's done a lot. He has so many acting credits. It's uh, as long as my arm. But uh, also a well, big For your fan younger audience,
2: he was also on a show called Sister, Sister. He played the father.
1: Oh, there and, you go. Uh, he
2: was on. You know Simon and Simon. He played a character named Downtown Brown. He, I remember. He's that, done yeah. a lot of acting.
1: Uh huh. Yeah, and so I know that uh, you were really enjoying the the comedy team with Tim and and he. I think he decided to go on to try the acting career. Where did that put you?
2: It broke my heart. It was like a broken marriage when Tim um, decided to break up the act. I I, I hit every thing that I was dreaming of, praying for, hoping, was this comedy team would be the best comedy team that America had ever known. That Mm -hmm. we were going to go out, try to just, you know, knock the world on its on its uh, with our material. And when that broke up, I had never been on stage alone. And and it just rocked my whole world. And and I I sat in a bar one night drinking beer till (laughs) two o'clock in the morning. My buddy owned a bar and I was thinking, what can I do? I was always real good at alternatives, so I'm, I'm look, thinking I can either get another black guy and do the same act, or I could go it alone and be a stand-up, or I could quit the business and get a job in a factory and make my ex-wife at that time happy, because she hated show business and didn't want me in it. Wow. And uh, and and so I, I, I sat at the bar, and I decided I was going to go it alone. I was going to try to become a stand-up comedian, make it on my own, and the tonight show would be my goal. And as I was sitting in the bar and my buddy was getting ready to close the bar up, he owned the bar, and I thought I had read a book called PMA, Positive Mental Attitude, years ago. And in it, it said, if you know what you want to do in life and if it's a noble endeavor, search your life and see if there's anything that can deter you from that noble achievement and then get that out of your life. And I sat at that bar, and I'm drinking, I'm thinking, what could stop me if I wanted to make it to the Tonight Show?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: What could stop me, man, woman, or beast? Or, you know? <laughs> and all I thought of was drinking, because I like to drink beer. I used to mm-hmm. love to drink beer. And I thought, that might stop me, not waking up with clear heads every day. So I pushed the they had two beers in front of me. I pushed them at the end of the bar, and I said, I quit. My buddy said, quit for the night, Tommy? I said, I quit. He said, no, for the night. I said, no, I quit. And he went, yeah, right. Yeah. And I never touched another drop till I became famous, you know, became doing tonight shows and everything.
0: Uh-huh. And
2: then I, then I tried a couple of beers and it didn't taste like it used to. So I still don't drink to this day, you know?
1: <laughs> well, that's, you know, that's, that, that's one way to go at it. Get get rid of the stuff that, uh, isn't going to work for you. Your home base at that point was still, um, Illinois and you decided to go to LA to, to pursue that career. What changed, you know, obviously you've been, you've been doing an act with Tim and you guys have been writing together and you, you're doing, you know, the skits, vignettes and things like that. How did you start actually writing for yourself?
2: Well, I mean, I, I was in the habit of writing because I wrote for the comedy team, too, mm-hmm. you know, but, but I, you know, I would MC sometimes local events <laughs> you know, uh, even when I was with the comedy team. Mm -hmm. And I'd always have to write a joke or two to open up the evening festivities. So I kind of got into the habit of that. And then I started realizing what joke structure was. I mean, you know, and I got in the habit of writing, you know, and and I got where I had five minutes. And then I got where I had 10 minutes. And then, then you get, you know, 15 minutes. And when I got out to the West Coast, I kept trying out at the comedy store Mm -hmm. because that was the only game in town out here in those days. That was 1975. And if you were going to make it out here, there was no improvisation in in Los Angeles at that time. There was no other clubs. There was uh, a couple of small kind of clubs, but the comedy store was on Sunset Boulevard, and it was the place to go. Mm -hmm. Every night, talent coordinators went into that club looking for new talent. You know, as I said earlier, the talent coordinators from the Johnny Carson, from the Tonight Show, from the Mike Douglas Show, from the Merv Griffin Show, from the Dinosaur Shore Show, from um, Midnight's Best Show, from Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand. They were all looking for comedians. Comedy was the rock and roll of the 70s. <laughs> right. People were getting discovered every night. But, so you had to get on at the comedy store. And the pressure was enormous to pass the audition at the comedy store. Because Mitzi Shore, the woman who owned it, was the one who you had to audition for. Well, it took me almost a month to even get an audition with her mm-hmm. to get the opportunity to get up on stage and for her to look at me. And the pressure, I can't describe it because if Mitchie didn't like you, it was time to go home. You had to go back to Toledo or Harvey, Illinois or wherever you were from because there was no other game in town right. that could launch your career. So that, that five minutes I did in front of Mitchie after about a month was really pressure driven. But I had enough material that that, you know, that I, I, I got over. You know?
3: mm-hmm. But the
2: writing, the writing aspect of it is, when, if you're writing a joke, this is something you have to learn earlier if anybody's listening who wants to write a joke. Comedy is two things, basically. Number one, it's nine-tenth surprise. Mm-hmm. The audience laughs because they didn't think you were going to say that or do that. So the setup line has to hide the punch line. And the other rule is there are no victimless jokes. Right. Who's the victim in the joke? You, society, um, the, your daughter's dating a punk rocker. Uh, uh, you know, your wife's best friend. Uh, you, you know, somebody is the is the victim in this joke. Let, let me digress. When I was in the business about four months, I went to Mister Kelly's in Chicago, and there was a comedian named Mort sau He was very famous at the time, and he was working Mister Kelly's. Mm-hmm. And I snuck backstage. And I went to his dressing room and I knocked on the door. And I, I figured his manager would answer and they'd throw me out. But he answered. He was all alone. He said, yeah, can I help uh-huh. you? I said, my name is Tom Dreesen and I'm a new comedian. I wondered if I could talk to you for a few minutes. He said, yeah, sure, come on in. And he talked to me for two hours before his next show. But he, wow. he gave me advice and counsel. But one of the things he said was, do you write your own material? And I said, yes. He said, remember, they're wrong. And I said, uh-huh. who? He said, they. I said, they, he said, who are you writing about? They're wrong. Government, they're wrong. The airlines are wrong. You, you're wrong. Your <laughs> wife, you your mother-in-law. Who's wrong in this joke?
1: You know, right. <clears throat> one of the, one of the things in the short time I've been doing stand-up, I found is you got to be pretty ruthless on yourself when something's not funny, even though you think it's funny, it's just not funny. and <laughs> You have to get rid of it.
2: Well, you know, but the other thing too is when you, when you're working on new material, when you gotta set five minutes or ten minutes or twenty minutes when you're new and you know that's good stuff. Mm-hmm. When you're working on new material, don't try that new material out on a Monday night in front of four people.
3: Right. You know. Yeah. Try
2: that new material out on Saturday night in front of a packed house mm-hmm. and put it in the middle. You know. Right. Work work on your stuff that's already working and then get to the new stuff in the middle and then go home with your strong stuff. But give that new material a chance. You know. But if it isn't working, look at it clearly and say, Did I if, did I hide the punchline or did they see it coming
3: mm-hmm.
0: or
2: also did I, did I, um, was there not a clear enough victim in this joke, you know, right. a clear enough observation.
1: You know? mm, right. That's, that's very, very good advice. So when you were doing, you know, it took you a month for Mitzi to see, uh, what, what, what happened after that?
2: When, when then, then when, I, when she saw me, she said to me afterward, "Yeah, well, I can see you have stage presence, and that you, you, um, uh, you know, that, you, that you've done this before." So she put me on the schedule. Now, the schedule was: you went on like Tuesday night at one o'clock in the morning, and then you went on. You know, you worked that for a while. Then you went on. You finally got on maybe Wednesday at, at like uh, uh, eleven o'clock, and then right. pretty soon you're getting kind of prime time, like nine nine thirty. And weeknights and then, then they'd put you on weekends and you're on at one o'clock in the morning again you know right. and then you worked your way to prime time until so you became one of the mainstays at the comedy store in those days i was working every night with all these unknown comedians david letterman jay leno michael keaton robin <laughs> williams gallagher you know the girl waiting tables was deborah winger you know uh-huh. um, these new new kids
1: yeah i recognize a few of those names
2: I, I don't know where they're at today, but I'm doing Scott Curtis's podcast yeah. right there.
1: <laughs> As Bob Zane would them. say, you've derived, baby. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously one of the uh one of the talent coordinators from Carson saw you for the tonight show and you, you, you got your break. I mean it took it took three uh bumps to get you there, but uh you, you finally got your break. After well, that
2: was it let me set you up. Okay. They didn't come to see me until I pestered them to come and see Oh, okay. Me. You know, th- 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 it wasn't like they were hanging out one night, and I was lucky and I got up. Uh-huh. You you either had to have an agent, and if you didn't, then you had to take over. If, if the mountain doesn't come to the man, the man must go to the mountain. Right. You know? So I, I just, I pestered the hell out of, the, of Craig Tennis, one of the coordinators at the Tonight Show. I mean, I gently did it. You know, I had been a salesman and I knew how to do that, but I, I, I won him over and got him to come and see me, uh, one night and, and, and I scored that night mm-hmm. and then he called me in the office. I, I tried out uh, that night that he, he came to look at some new acts, a, a comedy team called Bauman and Eston, a new kid named Billy Crystal and <laughs> me. Yeah, and I don't. I don't know whatever happened to Billy, but yeah. Anyhow, th- th- my my point is, is that that I scored that night. Then he called me into his office and he said, "Okay, I saw you do twenty minutes. Show me what five you would do if I put you on the Tonight Show." And I did a five minute routine in front of him. And he said, "Okay, take out that one joke, try mm-hmm. it again," and I put a new one in. It. And pretty soon he said, "Okay, you're on next Tuesday." You know, and, uh-huh. and that's when I, you know, for a week you don't eat. You know, you
1: oh, yeah, no doubt. You,
2: you go over your routine. Because in those days, 26 million people watched that show. Mm-hmm. You know, not not like today, but 26 million people, one appearance, and your career was launched. Freddie Prince got a sitcom the next day after he did his first Tonight Show. Right. The next day, I was signed to a CBS development deal the next day. After I did my first Tonight Show, a guy named Lee Curlin from New York was with CBS. He happened to be watching a Tonight Show, and he contacted... Uh, me on the West Coast, and you know William Moore assigned me the next day. I'm in the unemployment line one day <laughs> with a wife and three kids, I'm in the unemployment line. And the next day, my whole life changed. Wow! You know, and Sammy Davis Jr. took me on the road for three years. I mean, it, the, I can't tell you how much power that show
1: had mm-hmm. in those days. So. You know, I, I obviously I I came to see you in Valparaiso when you did your uh your Sinatra show and uh tell me a little bit you know you worked for you know Sammy Davis wanted you to do a couple shows and then uh I think Frank Stoya how how did that all come about?
2: Well, first of all, let me explain to your audience when you're saying that you saw me do my Sinatra show, hmm. so they don't think I'm a Sinatra singer in person. No, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I toured with Frank Sinatra for 14 years in 45, 50 cities a year. And I now do a 90 minute show called An Evening of Laughter and Stories of Sinatra. So I do it in theaters where I do stand up comedy. I do stand up comedy for about a half hour and then I segue to a bar. And as you know, there's a bottle of Jack Daniels on the bar, which is Frank's cricket choice. Right. And I start telling stories, and then pictures come on the screen, authenticating the stories. It's my life story, but pictures and video. To you know, come on the screen, taking you to all throughout my career to Fani to touring with Frank Sinatra. And,
1: and I don't want to, I don't want to stroke your ego too much, but you talk about not sleeping. After I saw your show and I met you, I didn't sleep that night. I just, uh, I just laid awake and thought about it. So. <laughs> oh,
2: that's well. I'm. I'm glad. I'm glad that's what you want to do. You, as an as an entertainer, you hope that you reach people. The, right. the, I've always thought that a good comedian could make you laugh for an hour and a half, but a great comedian can make you laugh and cry right. in an hour and a half. And I only saw two comedians do that: Richard Pryor and Red Skelton. Mm-hmm. And I always wanted to do that and in my one man show. That, as you know, I I have them laughing, laughing, laughing. But then I take them to some serious points in my life. The, the comedy team, as well as. And the dues we paid, as well as uh, Sin- to Sinatra, to the joy of that. to funny being a pallbearer at his funeral mm-hmm. and having to speak at his funeral, and have him in tears, and then bring him home with a, a funny monologue. You know? Right, that that, that show a real challenge. But how your question was, how did I meet Frank? I was touring all over the country with with the, you know, I mean, I was touring with every artist in those days. If a comedian could work clean, a lot of headliners wanted you to open for them. Because they brought in families, you know and so they, they needed a comedian that wouldn't that wouldn't work blue you know
3: through mm-hmm.
2: your people listening who do not know what blue means. I mean comedians know it means using f- curse words or foul material right. you know so I was in demand because I was doing all these TV shows. They saw me working clean. Sammy Davis Jr. took me on the road for three years, but Mac Davis took me on the road. Tony Orlando and Don took me on the road. Frankie Avalon, I worked with him a lot. He's a good buddy of mine.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, James Darren. Um, um, I'm trying to think of, you know, different artists at all. Every, every time I turned around, somebody else was hiring me to open for them. And then Smokey Robinson, uh, was also a dear friend, Smokey Robinson hired me. To work with him, and I'm turning around the country with Smokey. Wow! And and then Frank Sinatra was appearing next door at Harris Hotel when we were working at Caesars in Lake Tahoe. Mm-hmm. And and as you know, because I explained this in the one man show, that I rushed over one night after my show at Caesars with Smokey. I got off stage and I didn't even change out of my stage clothing. I ran over to Harris so I could catch Frank Sinatra. And uh, uh-huh. as I was running in the showroom, the, the vice president of Harris Hotel saw me. And he was talking to a big guy with a cigar, and he said, Tommy, come here quick. And I came over, and he said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin, and I recognize the name. That was Frank Sinatra's lawyer. He said, Mickey, this is Tom Duce, and I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face that like he heard that a million times.
0: Uh-huh.
2: And he said, he winked at the vice president, and I caught the wink. And he looked at me, he said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than 50,000? I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 And he started laughing and laughing. Yeah. He said, I like this kid. And, and a week later, they gave me a week with Frank at the Golden Nugget in Atlantic City. And the second night I worked with him, he and his wife, Barbara, took me out to dinner. And I can remember like it was yesterday. He pushed his knife on his fork aside. He was eating. He said, I like your material and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me if you're interested. Mm -hmm. And I didn't say, let (laughs) me go check my calendar, you know, 14 years.
1: Wow. That's, I mean, what a story. And, and I know that, uh, you know, you you had the CBS development deal and people approached you for, for other deals, but, uh, you just really, you really enjoyed what you were doing. So you, uh, you kept it up and, uh, you got to respect that.
2: But here's the thing, Scott, and every comedian should hear this. Yeah, I really enjoyed what I was doing, but I knew I had to continue to grow as an artist. So I kept writing and I would come home and, 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 uh, and the moment I came off the road working Caesar's Palace or the Riviera Hotel or the, the Desert Inn, the Sands Hotel, these big, major venues. The moment I came back to L.A., I would sign up to go to the Comedy Store or now the Laugh Factory mm-hmm. and I do it. This, I've been in the business 50 years. Last Saturday, I went to the lab factory with my notes, and I tried out new material. Wow. You know, you, you, you we never stop learning in this business, and we never, in my opinion, you never arrive. Right. You never solely make it, you know, wh- whatever you think. You know, we're always growing as an artist, and so you should continue to keep working on new material, keep writing new material, and and uh, continue to what I call staying oiled. right. I really sometimes feel, it's good to t- take time, time off, but also right. it's also good to, to stay oil, you know.
1: Yeah, and and writing's as easy as having a notebook, or now with smartphones, having a recorder close by and just take taking the notes and writing them. I feel like comedy, you know, just the uh, the sets I've done. If if you go out and have your best set ever, have a really great night. When it's over, you are right back to zero, and you have to do that again the next night and the next night and the next night in order to, and and like you said, you never arrive. You're just going, you're going on to the next gig.
2: That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know, <clears throat> It's this way. When I made it to Mr. Kelly's and in Chicago, and that was a, a big club one as a single. When I went back to work, at Mr. Kelly's opening night, you, you, I was really nervous because I'd been with the comedy team for years and I, I was afraid the press would say, Tom without Tim is not an act, you know, maybe right. or something like that. So I was, I was, you know, waiting I went on and I scored and all the media was there in those days, the critics, you know, Skaga uh, Tribune, the Sun Times, the, uh, the uh, today, there was like the uh, Scalga daily news. There was like five or six newspapers in there at that time. And then there's a variety magazine. And so, you know, all the critics were there and I scored mm. and some of them came backstage and said, wow, you know, we are really good, and congratulations. And, and, and I knew that I was going to get the reviews, and they left. And I was sitting in there, and I was thinking, wow, man, wow. I, I, I did it tonight. I got them. Uh-huh. And I hear, knock, knock, knock. Five minutes, Mr. Dreesen, a brand new audience is out there. right? A brand new audience. So your options up all over again. Yep. You know, uh, Dick Sean once said, most people live from day to day, Singers live from song to song, comedians live from joke to joke. You got it. Yeah, <laughs> you're opting this up at the end of every joke. Yeah, exactly. So you're right. It's it's it's. it's you know, it, you're right. It's you never you never arrive. Right. But bask in the glow of the nights you kill. Remember that warm feeling, that wonderful feeling. You know, because once you know that you can do this, and that the material is good, and it got good reaction. And if you have a bad night, an off night, you don't go into a turmoil because you know this stuff works, and you know you work. Right. It it just was a you know might have been a bad setup in the room, might be just a a tough audience. Al Jolson used to say, "There's no such thing as a bad audience, only a bad performer." Mm -hmm. Al Jolson's full of it. I met a lot of bad audiences.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I, I've seen a few myself. I wanted to get into because you've stayed current and you still work with uh some you know when you do your uh fundraising and all that you still work with uh the younger guys sometimes and i wanted to so you know what's going on how do you feel that comedy has changed since you started and how do you feel like it's kind of stayed the same
2: well i mean the the way it changes dramatic in, in my opinion you know, I, the other reason I go to the Laugh Factory on weekends when I'm off the road is they have young black couples, young white couples, young Asian couples, young Latino couples, you know. Um, the, the, so I want to stay in touch with this younger audience as well, mm-hmm. you know. And and on the, the bill, there's always a lot of other young comedians. And the difference is, is that when I started out, the only way you could get known was doing national television.
3: Right. And that meant you
2: had to work clean. You had the right material that could make grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, and the kids laugh. Mm-hmm. So you really had to really, know, it was real creative writing, you know, and, 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 and so you had to, you had to, you know, the problem with the F word is that it's a noun, it's a pronoun, it's an adjective, it's an <laughs> adverb, right. and so you can go there anytime you can't think of something funny to say, a clever adjective. I'll give you right. a, a, a funny true story. I was at the Laugh Factory about a year ago, and I was getting—I was upstairs getting ready to go on, and I was around the corner looking at my notes, and and around the corner there were two young comedians who didn't know I was there, uh-huh. and one of them said, "You know, Tom Dreeson is here," and the other comedian said, "Yeah, you know, he's old school." <laughs> the other comedian said, "He's old school," you know, you know, what do you mean? He said, well, "He doesn't use the f word," and the other comedian said, "He doesn't use the f word." What does he use for adjectives? And I stuck my head around the corner and I said, adjectives, Right. you know, that's what I use for adjectives. Right. So, right. I mean, I, I say that, but that, that's the difference it, that you, you know, now can I work blue? I can do a stag roast with the best of them.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I mean, I've, I've done stag roasts for only guys and you can be as blue as you want. Um, but I couldn't make any money doing that. And when I started out, that's the way you got to be known by working clean mm-hmm. and writing, you know, clean, creative material. And also, I started doing a lot of corporate dates where the money really is at. Right. You know, uh, corporate dates, you know, you don't have to worry about, are you drawing? Are, are many tickets sold? You, you go out there and there's already a built-in audience and they're paying you more money than you can make in, in a month in a comedy club. Right. And, and, uh, and so, but you, you couldn't offend their clients or, you know you know you had the right material that could make everybody there laugh you know without offending um you know the, the president of the company's you know clientele and stuff like that
1: mm-hmm. for for my act i work uh almost totally clean and i've i've let the f words slip a couple times and it just doesn't work for me and and some of the younger comics talk to me and say you know i really need to do a clean act so I can get on more shows. And I'm like, well, all you got to do is just uh, drop some of those words and some of that material and you'll be fine.
2: (laughs) Well, it's, it's, you know, creatively, it's easy to go there. You know, Mm -hmm. when you can't think of anything, a lot of, a lot of the um, comedians when they first started doing it, see, here's what changed was cable television. Right. In, in the days when I started out, television wasn't that big. So, you, you know, you, you again had to work clean. When cable came along and you could work as blue as you want and, and still draw, you could work blue as you want and maybe sell out arenas. That changed the whole course of comedy. right? You know, and then young. See, when I started out, every one of those people in that audiences were sophisticated they knew what stand-up comedy was about because they had seen Jack Benny's and Bob Hopes and and George Burns and and Johnny Carson at night. And, Mm -hmm. you know, they had seen these clean comedians across the country, Danny Thomas, and working, do an hour of stand-up comedy and not not swear once. So they, they were judges. Today, young kids grow up watching Comedians using the f word and every mm-hmm. and all sorts of sexual references and and they think when they're eighteen 18, 19 years old and they go to their first comedy club and they hear these comics working like that they say oh that's comedy oh I see you can swear in public as yeah. much as you want and that that's adult right you know and they thought they think wow that's what stand up comedy is
0: you know mm-hmm. and, but
2: and, you know I tell them you know it, 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 about the anytime you use an adjective in your act more than once, it starts to lose its effect. Right. About the fifteenth time you said the F word, I got it. You right. Know, you, you, you you the shock value wears off.
1: Yeah, know? yeah. It's it's just part of the background at that point. I wanted to bounce something off of you. I I, uh, I actually produced my first show last week. It was a Thursday night, and it was a new club, and I had a headliner that was. Uh, he, he's from my area, but he was uh, he's he's quite a bit more seasoned than I am, and we did we did the show, and and it went pretty good. But we were talking after the show, and he mentioned something that I never thought about. He said that most people discover comics now on youtube or like netflix or something like that they don't see them live so they don't know how to act when they are in a live situation so they don't laugh as much have you have you seen that no okay I mean, I, well you're you, the, the, i mean you're a superstar so th- that's a little different
2: Oh well, no it's, I'm, I'm not <laughs> i'm not but thank you but no uh-huh. i i don't think i don't think that that's the the, the truth that they don't know how to, laugh you know, um, what sometimes, uh, I mean, the room is not set up right. A lot of times you learn this as you get older Mm -hmm. in comedy, that there's certain rooms that are set. Let me give you an example. The Laugh Factory in Los Angeles is the best comedy room. It's intimate. The people are right to the stage. Mm -hmm. There's a low ceiling. You know, laughter is sound. It hits the ceiling and comes back at you, you know. If you're in, in a room that has a real high ceiling, that's not good. If you're outdoors, it's even tougher. Because mm-hmm. we set our timing off of their laughter. Right. And the fuller the sound, you know, the the, the better it is. I, I, when I opened for Sinatra, I used to work 20,000-seat arenas where 20,000 people and you were in the round. Right. They were all around you. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like you, there was a proscenium where they're out in front of you. Uh-huh. They're around you. So you had to learn to walk the stage and all. So sometimes the logistics of the room make the difference you know right uh, but but and and sometimes the size of the audience you know and and laughter is infectious people start laughing at the others laugh you know when you go into um a, a, a small room most people do not want to share their laughter it's like their tears you know uh-huh. if, if you had a big <laughs> big laugh <laughs> you know Somebody might, your, like your wife or your, or if you're a woman, your husband say, hey, "Honey, keep it down." You know, uh, whenever I see somebody in an audience doing that to someone, I'll go say, "Hey, hey, hey, leave her alone." You Laugh as much as you want. <laughs> yeah, you, no, know, no. you know, I I make jokes about it. but going. That's a long answer to a short question. I, I don't think that that um, people watch us off of YouTube and not, you know, they they don't know how to react when they come into it. now if they heard the same joke,
3: mm-hmm. you know,
2: you. See, that, this is the other dilemma of the comedian, why the magician is so, we are so awed by the magician. Because he never shows you how he did the trick. Right. If he showed you how he did the trick, the next time you saw it, you'd go, oh, you wouldn't applaud because you know how it's done. Right. With the comedian, once he shows you the punchline, you now, you laugh the first time because you were surprised. Mm-hmm. The next time, you know it's coming. Yep. You know. So if you've watched somebody do all of their act on on a a YouTube and then you go see them in a club and they're doing the same material. Well, you've, you've heard it already.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's cool. It's live, but yeah, I, I've seen that a couple times, but most of the, most of the comics I see like to put some new stuff out. So that, that definitely makes for a better show. One of the,
2: also think about the room. Here's the other thing too. Mm. If there's empty seats in the room, if there's a gap between you and the audience, you know, the, your energy, if you're a singer, a juggler, a comedian, you're on stage, your energy, and you're trying to take your energy from your routine to the audience, going all the way through the audience and back up to you, mm-hmm. back to the audience and back up to you. That's like an electrical current that you're, you're going with this audience, right? Now, if there's gaps in the audience or waiters and waitresses waiting on people while you're trying to do your act, it's like taking a scissors and cutting that electrical current uh-huh. from happening. So the more, see, why I like to work theaters, when you saw me in Valparaiso, did you see any waiters and waitresses walking around? Did no. Did you see any, any, <laughs> any, any, the, the, the audience was right in front of me? Right. Because that was set up for comedy. That mm-hmm. was set up perfect for performing. You know, people, if they had a drink, they had it out in front. Then they come in and sit in the theater. That's the best place to work. Right. When we were comedy rooms or stuff like that, and waiters and waitresses are serving drinks, they're constantly interrupting your flow.
1: Mm-hmm. You know? Yep. Yeah, I, so that's I agree That's why my with corporate that.
2: dates, I have it in my contract. I don't go on during dinner. I don't go on during dessert. I don't go on at all till all the dinners and the waiters and waitresses are out of the room. They're not pouring coffee. They're done with all that. And so I always insisted after, when I do a corporate date, that after dinner, the president of the company or somebody gets up and does a little talk. So the audience can start focusing to that center stage, and then finally the waiters and waitresses are cue to get out of the room. And when they're all settled down, then introduce me.
1: Because mm-hmm.
2: if you introduce me while they're eating dinner, or waiters and waitresses, I- I'm I'm at the mercy of that, and I know that doesn't work.
1: Right. <clears throat> I'm on the the one of the same uh, groups as you, the uh, one of the comedy groups and uh, the, the Dobie group, and I wanted to. I wanted to see if you would expand on something that you've commented a few times. So there's been a lot of uh, threads about the PC culture and how that's changing comedy and all that kind of stuff. And it seems like your comments pretty much always the same. Are you funny? Can you expand on that and, and tell people tell tell these comics how they can overcome PC and, and all that stuff?
2: Well I mean so so everybody understands the politically correct police are out there today, and you know they'll they're trying to destroy comedy. Mm-hmm. look we have the First Amendment in this country you can say whatever you want to say now we can say whatever we want to say you don't have to listen to it you can shut us off. Right. you can get up and walk out the door and ask for your money back, but they have the right to say it and there's only one rule in comedy be funny right that's your only rule be funny now you mean you're not going to be funny for everybody no comic is Mm -hmm. you know and that's why some people say well gee i love so-and-so but i don't like so-and-so and And you know my favorite comedian is everybody has their own sense of humor which makes them laugh right but there's only one rule in comedy be funny are there things that are tasteless absolutely are there jokes that 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 i find repulsive Yes, but there are jokes. Other pe- that, and the, and the other people think that they're very funny. Right. So you know that's what it's all about. When you start telling comedians, okay, I want you to go out there and um, now, by the way, don't say this and don't say that. <laughs> don't bring up this and don't bring up that. You're putting them in a box. Right. And once you put that box and the lid on it, they're no longer that free flowing comic like Robin Williams was. You know, people right. like that. That once once their heads went. They went any direction they wanted to go and that that was the genius of them you know now again you 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 know the politically correct police you know uh, I, I I probably shouldn't do this but I'll tell you <laughs> you can go on the internet and and see uh, say Tom dressen rants on politically correct police uh-huh. it's a little short video I did I'm not going to tell you about it but your watchers or your listeners can go to uh, the internet, I think it's on YouTube. Tom Dreeson rants, R-A-N-T-S rants about politically correct police.
3: Mm-hmm. And it has
2: a punchline to it. But, and I'm talking to four comedians at the time, by the way, right. uh, from Dobie Maxwell's group, uh-huh. you know, four good friends that, are, that are, are Bill Gorgo and Nick Cosentino and, and, uh, geez, I can't remember all the guys or, or James Wesley Jackson,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you know, um, some it's for comedians I'm talking to and they videotaped it.
1: Right. Yeah. I, uh, Dobie Maxwell is one of the guys I want to get on, on on the podcast as well. And and we, we've shared a couple messages and, uh, when he has some time, I'm definitely going to get him on. That group is fantastic. If you're learning to be a comedian.
2: Yeah. You should tell if, if you're a comedian out there listening, Dobie Maxwell has a Facebook page, um, I can't, what's the title of it? I think it's um.
1: Um, it's the the Maxwell Method.
2: Yeah, the Maxwell Method
1: of and comedy. On, I think yeah. he's got
2: about thirty five hundred comedians on it, and he's got you know senior comedians that will give advice, including Dobie, who's right. written a book about stand up comedy, and he and he's very talented and and uh, and is willing to help other comedians along their journey, and and I and I think all comedians should right men and women should go onto his page if you can Dobie, the, yeah the maxwell method
1: yeah and it's it's just a great group i mean i've probably posted five times since i've been on there but i just read everything you just soak it all up it's it's great stuff uh speaking of that you know dobie's done a lot of mentoring um any any comics around uh the you've mentored that uh you you feel pretty proud of
2: well, Tiffany Haddish is one. You know, I helped her when she was a little girl. Wow. Like 13, 14 years old. And, and uh, she's a big star now. She's, she's, she's blowing up. more money than me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah she's, she makes about five, six million a movie now. And, and uh, you know, God bless her. Uh, I, I, she's a wonderful young girl. But, but I, I, my whole comedy career, I've tried to help other comedians because I remember what it was like when I was new and, and how grateful I was when somebody would try to give me some advice or counsel I do a motivation speech. I give motivation talks at colleges and at, at universities, colleges and and corporate for corporate America, and and I, I talk on four subjects: perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. But I also give that same talk to comedians, and and, and I, I tailor it a little bit different. But I call it the joy of stand-up comedy and how to get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and it's it's it, because. This is the greatest profession on the planet, bar none. You think about what a stand-up comedian is, guy or girl, it's the greatest profession on the planet. You know, let me do a couple of things. One is to explain that the insurance companies of America many years ago did a survey around the world of the 10 fears of man. It took them Mm. eight years to complete this survey or something, but the 10 fears of man, death was fourth, Pain was second. Getting up in front of an audience was number one fear of mankind. Wow. If you can get up in front of an audience and you can talk about being a house painter for an hour, you, you, or you can talk about being a lawyer or talk about being a bus driver or an architect for an hour, you're in less than 1% of the population of the world. If you can get up and make people laugh for an hour, you're in less than one millionth of 1% of the population of the world. No doubt. You know, what you have is a gift. Mm -hmm. It's a great gift. Don't tarnish it. Laughter is healing. We no longer, it's no longer um, a theory. Um, A man named Norman Cousins wrote a book called Laughter Math. He wrote another book called The Anatomy of an Illness. And it it was because he was told he was going to die. The doctors told me he had a heart condition, that stress had caused his heart condition. He didn't have long to live. He laid in the Mm -hmm. hospital and he thought, if stress and negative input made me ill, then positive input should make me well. He checked out of the hospital. He'd only watch I Love Lucy reruns, Candid Camera, Three Stooges, The Marx Brothers. He'd listen to comedy albums. He never read the evening news. He never watched the evening news. He never read the papers. He laughed himself at the health. He lived 27 years after the doctors told him he was going to die. Wow! Because of him, UCLA did research. They know that laughter is psychologically a deterrent that if you're laughing at a comedian or a record or something, you're not thinking of your problems. So it's momentarily a psychological deterrent. If it also because of him, UCLA did research and they found out that when the human brain laughs, chemistry is released from the brain into the bloodstream. So laughter is not only psychologically uplifting, it's physiologically therapeutic. Mm-hmm. And after a hearty laugh, sometimes after a hearty laugh, and you've laughed so hard and like tears are rolling down your eyes and you go, Oh, and the sense of well being comes yeah. over your body, your body's gone through an actual chemical change.
1: Right. Well, you you can feel the stress melt away when you do that.
2: Well, again, my point of that is if if laughter is psychologically a deterrent and physiologically therapeutic, and comedians are physicians of the soul. Yeah. So, you you know, you comedians out there, you who can do it, this is is the greatest profession on the planet. Don't destroy that, and that's what I try to tell them, with drugs and alcohol. Don't destroy that gift you have, you know. Mm-hmm. With, 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 with and, 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 and tarnish the gift you have, you know, with by, by ruining the, the organ that's most important in your body for comedy is your brain, you know. Right. And uh, and, and the other reason I say this, don't talk badly about other comedians. Do you ever, Exactly. If you ever went to a doctor and, and the doctor said, uh, um, you know, geez, Doc, I, 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 I was going to go to this Dr. Peabody. You ever heard a doctor say, Dr. Peabody? I wouldn't go to that <laughs> bum. They don't speak poorly of their profession, right. nor should we,
1: you know? Yeah, uh, I've, I've experienced that a little bit because I, uh, we, I'm in South Bend, Indiana, and we've got a comedy club here. And when I first started going up, everybody was nice to me and it's a very supportive club and people talk to you, they give you tips and it's fantastic. I, uh, I do a lot of traveling and I uh, went to an open mic and, nashville tennessee and they weren't so nice (laughs) and and, you know it's just uh it's just uh hot or cold but you might as well be nice be nice to everybody because somebody's going to get famous and uh you want to be on the right side of them when it happens
2: well that's one way to look at it but here's (laughs) the other way to look at it most comedians i mean a lot of comedians are envious of another comedian Mm -hmm. for whatever reason but. Here's something you you gotta learn. There's a great Hindu proverb. There's nothing noble about being superior to another human being. True nobility lies in being superior to your former self. Oh. Am I a better friend than I was last year? Am I a better son than I was last year? Am I a better husband than I was? Last year? Am I a better comedian than I was last
3: year? Uh-huh.
2: So that's who you're so a lot of comedians are envious, you know, and, and they they that's the one thing that you don't want to do is be envious of another comedian because he's not your competition. We all start out with certain comedians and sometimes they get ahead of us. They, in their career, they do the uh, certain TV shows that you were wishing you could do or things like that, mm-hmm. you know? And so you get a little envious, but you're not in competition with that other person. You're, the rest of your life. Your only competition is your former self. Listen to your tapes. Have I grown? Have I written new material in last year? Right. Am I a better comedian than I was last year? That's your only competition. And the, keep in mind, comedy isn't a five k or ten k; it's a triathlon.
1: Oh yeah. I mean,
2: it's it, it, you, you're you never arrive. You're always you always can get better. You
1: know. Yeah, that's that that is so true. Thank you for saying that. That uh, that's very very helpful. I really, um, you know, I've had you on here for about an hour, so I don't want to, I don't want to take up too much of your time. But I had one last question that that I wanted to make sure I asked. Knowing what you know about the world today, would you, if you were just getting out of the Navy again and had the opportunity to do comedy, would you do it all over again?
2: Oh, I would have done a lot sooner. You know? Uh huh. I, I w- <laughs> Oh, I wish. I wish I would have known when I was in the service or, you know, I, I always could tell a joke. I was real good at telling a joke. Right. Um, I could always, um, and I always was good with imagination. I could imagine how that could have been funnier. Somebody could tell me a joke when I was growing up and, and it would be kind of a chuckle, but I could figure out a way to make it funnier,
0: sometimes. Uh-huh.
2: you know? And, um, when I was a bartender, uh, I could tell stories about like everybody in the bar knew all the customers. And so if I had Scott's permission, I, you know, if I didn't want to. I wouldn't belittle Scott, but I'd say, you know how Scott loves hearing, um, like Sammy Davis Jr. or somebody. He loves mm-hmm. hearing Frank Sinatra. Then I, I could tell a funny story about you listening to a Frank Sinatra record when night. I could, I could create funny stories mm-hmm. when I was a bartender, and I got tips better for that because I always have a funny story with right. customers, um, and about their idiosyncrasies, especially when they drank. So, but I didn't know that I could ever do this on on stage, if I, if I would have known, when I, and the other thing, let me digress to that. I went to Catholic school. None of us didn't reward you for ad-libs. You know? <laughs> They'd they whip that ruler out on right. you hardly, <laughs> but, but I wish somebody would have seen that in me as a child, as a young boy, and maybe got me to a performing arts school. Mm. Cause I, I dropped out of high school when I was 16 years old and I ran away from home and a lot of other things, you know, that I, I, I did. I wish somebody would have seen that in me when I was younger and said, Hey, you know, you, you, you've got to tell them, I encourage parents all the time when they tell me, gee, my daughter, she just loves to sing. She's seven years old, eight years old. She sings in front of the TV. And I tell them, develop that, mm-hmm. develop that, encourage that, you know, and, and that if it, 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 it when, when, you know, Freddie Prince was my friend. Uh, he later committed suicide, mm-hmm. of soul. but he went to a performing arts school in New York, kind of like the movie, like the TV show Fame. Right. I wish I could have gone to a high school like that, you know, and. You know, that would have been, I wish I'd learned a lot, I wish I'd have started a lot sooner and answer to your question.
1: Right. I, you know, I hear you so much. If, if that would have happened to me, I probably would have started before I was 50. <laughs> so, but I, sure. I've always loved art and I am not good at anything art wise except for comedy. And I didn't know that, you know, I tried painting, I tried drawing, I tried uh, playing instrument, tried singing. I, I just, I can't do any of that. And, you know, when I finally found it, you know, it was, I, I got to say, it's great. You, you, it's just like what you said at the beginning. You kind of understand your reason for being.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I knew <clears throat> that moment that I got a laugh on stage, that that's what I was put on this planet to do. In right. my opinion, you know, and I thank God every single night of my life. I, that's no joke. Every night. You know, I, you know, I tell you something that I wouldn't tell anybody. But I, not that I'm, I'm embarrassed. by it, But I, have, mm-hmm. I do evening prayers every night before I. go. I, I pray for people that I hear
3: mm-hmm. are
2: ill. Or you know, I have a prayer list, and if somebody tells me, "Gee, my wife is going to chemotherapy or something." I, well, I put them on my prayer list. Mm-hmm. You know? But I, 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 but every night I thank God for finding this profession for me. Right. I make a living at what I love to do. Oh, I mean, I. To to this day, I mean, I love show business. I hate getting there. It's it's the yeah <laughs> it's the travel that, that wears <laughs> you out. But yeah, but I'm making a living at what I love to do. How many people can say that?
1: Right. I've already told you this, but you know, you inspired at least one guy. He's a late bloomer, but uh, you you definitely inspired me. And you'll always be my first, Tom.
2: <laughs> wow. Well, I I can't tell you how that makes me feel.
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: no. No, but I'm I'm glad. You know that. that what, you know, one of the, if you could, be in any profession and earn the respect of your peers, I think that that's, I think that's a noble achievement.
3: Right. You know,
2: because uh, we we are in a cutthroat business. You know that it's a, it's a, you know, people are striving to to succeed, and sometimes they want to step all over you to do that. You know, but if you can last in this business. Uh, make a living in this business and then earn the respect of your peers that's uh, that that makes me feel real good Mm -hmm. which should make anybody feel
1: real good right right well I I can say Tom that when I was uh, bouncing this idea for a podcast off my wife she said okay who's your dream guest and I of course said Tom Dreesen and, and you're my first guest so I guess I can just do the one episode and be done with it then huh
2: that's it. It's all over, Scott. Yeah. There's no sense going any further. Yeah,
1: it makes it easy.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I wish you the best. And and I'm sure. And tell Dobie Maxwell that you that uh, or I'll tell Dobie that I did your podcast and uh, and, and and put that on on Dobie's um Uh, page you know i will the epic comedians
1: yeah i will i'm gonna i'm gonna start tapping that for some some great interviews i i i I like to keep a low profile before i actually launch it and uh, i want to get those four good interviews done and then we'll, we'll we'll get this baby going and uh hopefully they'll roll in like i want them to good yeah. Yeah. Wish I, you the best. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, Tom. This is this has been almost as good as meeting you in person. <laughs>
2: okay, well <laughs> I'm I'm glad I'm glad you feel that way.
1: Yeah, and a lot a lot of great advice here. Um thanks so much, Tom. This is this is uh one of the I probably won't sleep tonight, so <laughs>
2: <laughs> well then I, I may I recommend just a little bit of, of uh, of a mild, uh, sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'll I'll take a look at I, that.
2: Okay, buddy. you take. Thanks care, so God. much, Tom. Bye bye. Okay, take care.